over the last sort of year, 18 months, we've been looking at uh, the rise of Moses and the challenge of uh, the God of Moses to the gods of Egypt and the ultimate rescue of uh, Israel from the clutches uh, of slavery. And one of the most significant parts of this scenario was the Passover meal um, that came about. <laughs> Are we just giving up? Okay. Are you all right to just do the next slide when I say, right, I'm going to give you a, a subtle nod. Um, okay, so we've been doing the uh, Exodus, and uh, part of this was this memorial meal, this Passover meal, where they were uh, to remember um, that they were saved from this destroyer that killed the firstborn, and that this was the thing that... Uh, eventually broke Pharaoh's heart and allowed uh, Israel to escape. Um, And that Passover meal was the thing that Jesus elevated into what we know as communion. So this thing that we had, it has its origins in that Passover meal, and then Jesus gave it new significance uh, um, in it representing his uh, death, in the uh, shedding of his blood and the giving of his body. And so this communion, this Eucharist, this Lord's Supper, goes back to this Passover meal that we looked at uh, uh, um, a month or two ago. Um, and in the Jewish one, I've been doing a little bit of reading and, and, and more sort of modern day uh, stuff. Um, I've really been really enjoying some of the uh, uh, things surrounding it. And apparently in the middle of the, the, the sort of the Jewish Passover meal, you would expect to find children. Children were kind of welcomed into the very middle of the Passover meal. And if you remember the text we look at, you hopefully uh, will know why. Because they are there to ask a question. They are there to speak out in the middle of this religious ceremony, in the middle of this um, occasion where they can think of God, where they enjoy fellowship, where they remember God's providence. These children are supposed to come in and they are supposed to speak out and they are encouraged to ask questions. I wonder how many of you have been encouraged to shout out questions during church. Uh, uh, Sort of a quick dig in the ribs would have stopped me doing that as a kid. Just be quiet and get on with it. Um, But in this Jewish Passover, they were expected to ask questions. Go, what's going on, mum? What's that for, dad? And particularly, there's uh, there's something called the uh, Babylonian Talmud, and it's basically the sort of uh, sort of practices uh, and, and the ideas of the Pharisees after Scripture is written. And it said four questions should be asked by the kids. Why is the bread eaten? I think some of you probably don't even know why we have bread at the back. But the children to ask in the Passover meal, why is this bread? eaten why are there bitter herbs being eaten why is the meat eaten and why is the food dipped twice and these kids were sort of brought in and they were to say what's going on why are we doing this uh, um, the way we are and the idea was that the children in their ignorance would ask why and then the adults would go let me tell you Let me tell you about my God. Let me tell you about my faith. Let me tell you about the story of God's providence in our people. Let me tell you about how God rescued Israel from the clutches of Pharaoh. Let me tell you how God brought something new into our people. 
And this question of the child would erupt into this beautiful explanation of faith and what the Passover was and what this Exodus story is all about and why the Torah is so important. For the Jews even today, questions are critical to their faith. Christians prefer answers and we prefer written truth and we prefer uh, uh, things sort of nailed down. But this Jewish culture loves questions and asking and, and they would draw the line, they would point back to that Passover meal and go, the Passover meal is all about questions and our faith needs to be all about questions. And so the devout Jew today, it's all about questions and that's what makes a robust and uh, mature faith. When you can trust in Yahweh because you're asking questions, you go, what's going on? Why is this happening? Why do we do this? And uh, one rabbi I was le- uh, reading uh, about, um, his mum never asked him when he came home, what did you learn today? I really like this. He go, no, um, she never asked me, what did I learn? And she said, did you ask a good question today? Not what did you learn, what new, new facts did you fill your brain with, what more information did you acquire? Did you learn to ask an incisive question? Have you uh, managed to engage with what is going on and ask something around it that perhaps hasn't happened before? I still love the uh, question one of my boys asks when uh, uh, prayer time at night. He goes, what language did God speak when he spoke the world into being? I really like that. I've got no idea what the answer is. But it's a really good question. It's someone that's engaged with what's going on. And rather than just going fat and lazy, I'll just have that. It's what's going on? What else do I need to know? What are the implications for this truth? And so I ask you, what good questions have you asked today? And I think this is becoming a lost skill. I think we love to get facts. We love to fill ourselves full of documentaries and information and things to tell other people this is true. We are good at collecting replies to other people's questions, but we're not so good at asking questions for ourselves and looking for the response. We're not so good at asking, for, um, asking questions and then cherishing the replies and using them for our own faith. Beautiful. And so over the next few weeks, I want us not to consider the facts that we've collected by God. You know, some of us have done Bible college, some of us have sat through more sermons than we care to remember. Some of us have read all the books and done all the seminars. And I want us to put those for aside for a moment. I want us to ask questions and I want us to face up to the questions God asks of us. Not information about him, but the questions that he looks as directly in the eyes with and says, what about this? And let me be very clear. He's not a trainee healthcare provider. I had one of those that took my stitches out. Really good job, but you wouldn't want them to do anything deeper or uh, more probing. I'm talking about a... um, a trained, 
confident, learned surgeon who knows what you need, who you may not even want it to happen, but he's going to make deep and powerful incisions to uh, really get to the roots of things. The questions that he asks and that hopefully we're going to see asked over the next uh, few weeks and who knows years, we'll just see how it goes, um, where it gets to the point where it separates um, uh, bone from marrow, where it separates uh, our just religion from what's going on inside of our hearts. There's a vast range of questions that God has asked of men and women through the ages. There's a vast selection to choose from. And I've been really enjoying looking at which ones that we're possibly we're going to add to this collection. But I think the very first question that God ever asked humanity is one that we would do well to consider as we start off. If you've got a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 2. If you haven't got a Bible, there are some in the foyer by the entrance. And it says this in verse 15. This is like the, the beginning of history. The beginning of human history. And it says this. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden. And he was there to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat uh, from any tree in the garden. Everyone say any. Any, any tree in the garden, oh, but you must not eat from the tree um, of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. And the Lord God said, uh, um, it's not good for man to be alone. And uh, uh, so a woman joined uh, him. And he goes on. Um, right at the beginning of humanity's existence, we find there's a good, powerful, creative God, he breathes into existence this beautiful planet Earth. Um, and it's a perfect place in the Garden of Eden to put man and woman. It's a perfect place. It's somewhere that's going to uh, be exactly where they want to go. It would have been a scene of beauty. It was a scene of wonder and a scene of abundance. Everything that the heart could wish for would have been there. And it would have captivated Adam and Eve. They would have loved their time in this Garden of Eden. It was a, a place that encouraged them to be themselves, encouraged them to care for it and nurture it and work it. And in this lush garden, in this garden full of wonders and colours and smells, we're told that these first humans are to nurture and care and protect it. They're there to be gardeners, to work the land, to help bring forth the maximum um, of the vegetation. And it's interesting that one of the words that God uses for uh, man and woman's purpose in this Garden of Eden is, this, uh, is a, the Hebrew word for care. And it's the same word that um, is used of the priests in the temple later on. The priests are to care for the temple, to look after it, to protect it, to defend it. And Adam and Eve were to do that in the Garden of Eden. But as we probably know, even though Adam and Eve were to protect this holy sanctuary of God's providence, they'd be the ones that would defile it. Can I have the next slide? If you've got a Bible, turn to Genesis 3. It says this. 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, these all sound like good things, don't they? Why would you not? Um, she took some and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was there with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Sounds all good so far. And then they realized they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what did they do? It says, and then they hid from the Lord God. Where did they hide? They hid amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God said, Lord God called to the man, where are you? Where are you? God called. In the midst of the every delight of the heart and the sense, and the senses, Adam and Eve were in this Garden of Eden, but they cultivated a godless dissatisfaction. They would go, we're not happy with all of this. There's something more. We want, we want something else. And they've not only not protected this oasis from sin, but they've been the very means by which sin and disobedience and rebellion has come into it. They have become the very opposite of what God asked them to do, which was protect the Garden of Eden. They're greedy for this forbidden fruit. And they long to say to themselves, this is what's right and what's wrong. They've become uh, uh, longing to want a moral autonomy outside of God's uh, um, rules and regulations. They want to say this is good and that is not. And so Adam and Eve, they indulge these sinful appetites and they consume the fruit of the tree. And the consequences are swift and they are dreadful. And we are told their eyes opened, which sounds really good. You're like, well, who wouldn't want their eyes opened? Uh, but what do they see with their eyes that are now open? They look at their frail, naked, vulnerable bodies, which have always been so. And they see themselves standing in stark contrast to God. And they all, oh, we don't like this. We don't like being, uh, uh, looking frail and vulnerable and naked in front of God. And so they uh, uh, sew these fig leaves together. And so they have this acute shame. They have a shame about something that God has made them. And they use these fig leaves to cover their sexual organs in the sight of the Almighty. It's almost ridiculous. But this is their, what happens when their eyes are opened. And suddenly the sound that once brought them the thrill of their hearts, that walking of God in the cool of the day, now brings dread. Their relationship with God has been shattered. They loved to be with him in the cool of the day. You know, when the sun was down and uh, uh, things were, uh, the, the heat was less so, and they could know their God Almighty uh, one to one. But suddenly they're frightened. Suddenly they're scared. Suddenly they don't want that union. They don't want that relationship. And so as God's footfall uh, comes in walking in this holy garden sanctuary, it reverberates around and Adam and Eve are uh, um, dread 
what's going to happen next. And they're petrified. And they, uh, as well as hiding their bodies, they conceal themselves behind trees. And this is ridiculous. This is almost a joke. This is like a comedy sketch. This is God Almighty. He breathed the heavens into space. Do they really think a couple of fig leaves and a tree was going to get in his way? But that's what they do nevertheless. This is what the story tells us. They are just distorted in their thinking. And they are ashamed of their nakedness and their frailness. And uh, uh, they know that they've rebelled against what God has done. And their eyes have been opened to things it shouldn't have been. These were not the benefits and the wisdom that these two wanted when they ate the fruit. It looked so plump and juicy, this fruit. And they wanted wisdom. And suddenly their eyes are open and they see things that God never wanted them to see. And then, in this absolute train wreck of a situation, God calls out this single question. He says, where are you? And it should haunt us today, that question, where are you? God is spirit and he knows all things. He knows that Adam is quaking with a bad wardrobe and uh, behind an oak, an oak tree. The question is not an offer for Adam and Eve to say something that God does not know. God knows the answer to the question that he's asking. It is an invitation to Adam and Eve that have done a terrible thing to admit it, to put their hands up and say, you know what, we got it wrong, things, we got things screwed up, we didn't know uh, what way was up and we doubted you, God, we didn't trust you. And it's a moment when he says, where are you, that they can come forward and say, you know what, we got it wrong. But Adam doesn't understand this. Adam doesn't grasp the opportunity, this divine opportunity for reconciliation. And so he begins the blame game, which we are all so good at. And he points at his wife and goes, she's made me do it. It's not my fault. I'm not culpable. It's this troublemaker that you put here with me. And then the story goes on from there. This morning, I want us to be confronted by this question, where are you? Not... Geographically, where are you? Spiritually, where are you? Not what do you know about God? Not what have you achieved for him in the past? Not what knowledge have you acquired about him? Where are you in relationship with God this morning? Can I have the next slide? Turn to Romans chapter 3. says this in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. It is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one that understands, and there is no one that seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats have open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And we have this condemnation of man through the ages. 
Without God's grace, without his forgiveness, without Jesus, this is each of us. None of us are outside this categorization of humanity. We are all, without him, confused about our identity, and without God uh, uh, intervening, we cut ourselves off for him. We go and eat the fruit, we go and do destructive things, we go and do stuff that is contrary to his advice. For those of us that haven't confessed Jesus at all, the darkness and murkiness of the woods is all we know. We can barely see our hand in front of our face. We crash about from one disaster to another trying to find relief and we cannot bear the goodness of God. And if you don't know Jesus, then this morning is a good opportunity to remedy that because he is the only way out of the darkness that we seem to revel in. But no, it's disastrous for us. But on church on a Sunday morning, you often have more Christians than not. And I am going to ask us all this question again, where are you? Because Christians are very good at retreating back to the woods. We learn to avoid the light wherever we can. We don't like saying sorry. We don't like saying sorry the hundredth time for something that we keep doing. We don't like the idea that when God's light shines on us, we know there are things we're going to have to give up. And we don't want to, and we hold on to them. And so we retreat into the darkness. We retreat behind the trees because there it is safe, and we will not have to be made uncomfortable. We are afraid of what new things will come. We are afraid of what new demands will be made on us. We are afraid that we will not be able to cope with what God um, has intended for us. And so we retreat into the woods because it is safe there. We're not made uncomfortable. We can do what we want. We are in control of our destiny. And so we retreat into the darkness of the woods and we hide behind the, true, the trees. And we hate our vulnerabilities being exposed. We hate doing stuff that makes us feel uncomfortable. We hate doing stuff that somehow makes us uh, a point of attention. We'd rather just blend back into the background. We don't want anyone finding uh, themselves being able to take a pop shot at us. We want to be protected and safe and in somewhere warm and quiet where we don't have to struggle and we don't have to wrestle and we don't have to have a faith that uh, uh, really connects with anything because it means we can be quiet and secure and in the darkness. And we acquire appetites that the world has. We get beaten down by all the adverts, by all our neighbours, and we decide that we want the things that they have. That the things God has are good, but they don't have the immediate satisfaction that uh, um, things of this world have. And so we retreat into the woods, and all Christians do it. Each of us have got excuses why our lives lived a little bit in the darkness, a little bit in the woods, why we avoid participation in various different spiritual activities. 
And I wonder how many of us, even if your current demands, your family, your work, your hobbies, how many of these things, if they were taken away, you wouldn't enter into these spiritual activities again, but you would choose other ones. Because we like the darkness, because it is easier to operate without God's light shining on us. Because it is more comfortable. We are more comforted. We aren't stretched. We know what's going on when we rule our own lives. And we see it here in this fellowship. People avoid reading the scriptures. People avoid proper prayer. Not a quick Hail Mary as you go into school, but prayer, deliberate time with God. We sit on the edges of church meetings. This front row is very rarely filled up. People want to be just out the way. They don't want to be in the middle of God's gaze. You know, we just like to be on the back. And you know what? If something happens, we want to be able to skip out. We sit on the edges of church meetings, turn up late so we don't have to talk to anyone and then leave early so that we don't have to uh, um, ask after anyone else. We sit on our hands in worship and we skip fellowship wherever we can. And we dodge any sort of accountability. We don't want anyone to know what we get up to Monday through to Saturday. We love to live in the dark woods. But the truth is our Heavenly Father loves us massively. And he knows everything about us. Those fig leaves that you're covering uh, yourselves with, those busyness that you're occupied with, those things uh, that you pretend that you are somehow following God with, those are fig leaves and God sees straight through them. You're only fooling yourself if you think God does not see you for who you are and your relationship with him as it is. These trees and woods and forests are not saving your blushes. They are in the way and they are doing you damage. Now the last side. In the densest forest and the darkest wood, you will find, if you look hard enough, and it's true for Tilgate and it's true for Buchan and it's true for St. Leonard's, you'll find glades. You'll find areas where you can see the sky. You'll find areas where you can move freely and where you can get your bearings and you can breathe. There were glades at Camp Easy Peasy in the summer. They were the places that we could eat together. You can't eat amongst the trees, but you can eat in the spaces. It is there that we played games and enjoyed each other's company. And it is there that we were able to look up at the stars. You can't do that in the forest, in the darkness of the trees, but in those glades, in those spacious, beautiful glades, there is where we can have fellowship. And this morning I want to do, do a final reading, an invitation of the Apostle John to break out of the dark woods, out of the forest, out of the wooded, congested areas, and into the spacious glades. Turn in your Bibles to 1 John 1. It says this in 1 John 1. This is the message we have heard from you and declare to you in verse 5. God is 
light. Everyone say light. light. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we are liars. We lie and do not live out the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Every single one of us is in some way hiding behind a tree. Every one and single one of us is uh, burying ourselves in the forest in some way or another. And each of us, it will be different because we have our own special ways of rebelling against God. We have our own unique character. That means that we duck and dive God's gaze. If you claim to not live in the forest, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is in on, not in us. But there is hope. There is always hope. If we confess our sins, he doesn't make fun of us. He doesn't tut, doesn't roll his eyes, doesn't go, oh, not again, what have you done? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And he will forgive us our sins and he will purify us, make us clean again from unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, so that you will not find life in the forest, so that you will not settle for an existence under the canopies of the trees. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so the invitation this morning is simple. Come into the glade again. Come into the spaces where you're not protected from God's light Come into the spaces where you have to confront the God, your maker. Come into the spaces where you have to confess your sin, when you have to acknowledge that you have failed him again. It is humiliating to keep coming to God and going, I failed again. But it is that point of confession that God goes, welcome back. I'm glad you've got over that. I'm glad you haven't settled down in that darkness. I'm glad that you've realised again that you're not good enough and that you need me and that our relationship uh, is based on what I've done for you, not on what you can do for yourself. Come into the glade and let the God cleanse you of that, all that evil, all that evil that you are happy with, all that evil that you've been content to revel in, all that evil that, you know what, you've just forgotten it is evil because you are so used to it. Confess. Come into the glades and forget. Confess. Let that merciful forgiveness wash over you. Let his great work restore your soul. Again, give up all the stuff that gets in the way and relate to God in his light. 
Come into the glades and let God fill you with light, his light, this light that's full of knowledge and wisdom and purity. Not this trashy knowledge that uh, uh, all the other media around us fills us with and we start to care about. His pure, bright, everlasting knowledge that you were made to know. These complex brains and incredible capacities to understand, these were given so that we could know him, not so that we could delve down into the trashy morass of popular culture. Allow his wisdom to fill your hearts. Know that you are known completely. There is nothing he does not know about you. There is no fig leaf that you can put on your life that stops him knowing you completely. Uh, Give in to that being fully known. And give in to being properly equipped. Not for the things you want to do. Not for the things that you think you'd like to. Or that other people tell you to aim for. But the things and the good works that he's got in store for you. The heroes of the Bible again and again, are often confronted with things that they probably wouldn't have chosen. They are full of people who've had adventures that if they could, they would have stayed home and had cheese scones and tea because that's a lot easier. But God has better things for us than that. Better things than inactivity, better things than uh, a slovenly lifestyle, better things than just being busy, filling our lives full of things that look okay to do. He has godly objectives for our lives. Come into the glade and let the Father and the Spirit and the Son show you how to play with the space and room that comes from these spacious areas. You are all congested with these trees and all these different things that are getting in the way and all these things that are stopping you know God's love. And he says, come into the glade. Come and learn to play in the spacious areas. Come and know the free and easy life of following me. Forgiven and revived in those glades. We find the places where deep joy is not happiness, not just things that come and go, not just a a faint elevation of the heartbeat, but a proper joy that lasts forever. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, I pray that all of us will answer this question, where are you? God, I pray that we won't let this opportunity pass us by. That, Lord God, that we wouldn't just rest on religious activities. We wouldn't rest on just the busyness that we get involved with. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would come into the glades. That we would leave behind all sin and darkness and confused living and live in the radiant light of your beauty. Heavenly Father, I pray for each one of us that, Lord God, this morning, that we may even just take one more step towards those open spaces and away from the congestion and the darkness uh, and the chaos of the woods. Lord God, I pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.